your Bibles, let's open up to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John 15 as well as in John 17 this morning. We've been working through the Gospel of John for quite some time now. I appreciate you guys sticking with me through the whole round of Johannine exegesis. No, that's, I, that's what we'd say in, uh, that's right, don't do that. You're lo- John's telling me, hey, look, Hill, you're losing him. Um, no, this is uh, one of the great things about the Gospel of John is that it is so accessible to those who are new to the faith. I remember John was one of the first Gospels that I read, and it's so accessible. It speaks so plainly about who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. But I think the other thing about um, the Gospel of John is that every time I come to it, I feel like there's different levels and layers of the Gospel of John that I am fed by, that it's not just accessible for those new to the faith, but it's also, it has a depth to feed those who have walked with Jesus for quite some time, a layer upon layer, and I hope that that has been your experience with the Gospel of John as we have gone through it. We have two passages today, um, one where Jesus is addressing his disciples, which is the first passage that Sarah read for us, which was John 15, 18 through 25. And then we have a second passage where Jesus is praying to his father on behalf of his disciples. And both are tied together by this understanding that God, Jesus, and Jesus' followers have a relationship with what is referred to as the world or this world. And so today I want to explore this idea that we are people who follow Jesus, and as we are people who follow Jesus, as the passages say, that we are in the world, but not of the world. And some of you are probably familiar with a phrase like that, but uh, this idea that we are exploring, this idea that we have been sent into a world that is not just... not just like they don't get it or that they don't want to get it or they're insensitive, but there's a real hostility that can happen within this world. And yet we have this God who has a posture towards this world that does not prefer him, that as the passage says, talks about hating, that God has a posture towards this world, Jesus has a posture towards this world, and that we are called to also share in that posture. And so this morning, I just, I want to reflect a little bit on these two passages and ask the question, what does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world? You guys with me? And as, and I also want to say this, that as we ask and answer this question, this has been a question that has divided believers over the millennia of Christianity. Like how, how much being in the world How much do we do the things that people in the world do? And how much do we separate from things that we might consider worldly practices? And just what are those things? And so it's a little bit of fear and trepidation that I have coming up here this morning to talk about what exactly that means. And so we'll get there at the end, but I want to look at this passage. You guys with me on this one? All right, so brace yourself. I don't know if you have to brace yourself. But let's just, let's look at this. Let's look at John 15, 18 and ask the question, first of all, is to ask this question, what is the world, particularly in the Gospel of John, as John remembers the teaching of Jesus, what is the world? Now the term, the term the world, 
occurs 78 times in the gospel of John. 78. Now that's compared to the other three gospels. It only occurs 14 times. So for clearly, John wants to say something about this idea of the world. And um, one, one thing, that, there's two ways we can understand this, the, the world, okay? The, the first is simply the, the idea, maybe the, the way we tend to think of the world is simply the idea of God's created world. When we talk about when someone says, um, you know, like, I, I want to I see the world, I want to travel the world, what do we think? Is that, a, is that a negative thing or a positive thing? Yeah, it seems like we tend to think, like, we use the term fairly positively on occasion. Like, I want to see the world means I want to get out in the world. I want to travel. I want to experience what uh, the various cultures of our world have. I want to I eat new food. I want to I try new things. I want to meet new people. Like, I want to see the world. And there are times in the Gospel of John where it's used. Now, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read what, the first time the world is mentioned in the Gospel of John. It's in 110, chapter 1, verse 10, and it says this about Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And sometimes, when we hear the world in the Gospel of John, it's simply talking about God's created world. Jesus, all these things were created by Jesus. Jesus is the uncreated, uncreated Son of God. And everything is made through Him. And, that, and that's true, that we have this wonderful world that God has created. And, and when we think about this, sometimes we think about the world as, you know, it's, it's, you're, I think, I think I'm, I'm anticipating um, hiking in Yosemite this summer. And I'm thinking like, the world, it's beautiful, it's awesome. And there is this sense, when John uses it in this way, that we think of the world as, look, it is God's good creation, the things that are true and beautiful and good, that is part of the world. But one thing that we have to note is that um, even though that the world was made through Jesus, one thing we have to note is that in the Gospel of John, when the world or this world is mentioned, it is typically mentioned not in a positive way. It's mentioned in a negative way particularly. So, like, he was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And this is when we, the mo most of the times in the Gospel of John when the world is mentioned, and particularly in these passages, it's talking about the fallen world, the world that has been created. And as you read in Genesis, he's created good, he's created good, he's created good, all these things are good, and Adam and Eve are good, they are doing good, and everything in the garden is good, but after the fall, there is, there is a fallenness that is pervasive in the world. And when John mentions the world, though the world is created by God and created good by God, John is clear that the world is fallen. And the one thing about when he mentions the world, that the fallen world, according to John and according to Jesus here, that the fallen world kind of has a personality about it. That the fallen world actually kind of has thoughts and wills. And like the, the fallen world kind of has a way of doing things and a way of trying to press people into its mold. And so 
what Jesus talks about here is that when, we, when he's talking about the world, he's not just talking about God's good, beautiful, uh, his, his, his true, beautiful, good creation. He's talking about that true, good, beautiful creation that has become fallen. It has become corrupted. It has been working against him. So in 110, he was in the world, the world was made for him, but the world did not know him. One way to think about the world in John is that the world is God's created moral order in active rebellion against its maker. That's not as rosy as like Yosemite, right? Like, like you're like, oh, it's so beautiful. In active rebellion. So in some ways, this is not just about nature and things like that. This is about this is really about humanity. When, when John is talking about the world, he's talking about humanity and really the forces of this world, the unseen forces, and how they are really working against God. In many ways, when you hear Jesus and John talk about the world, he's talking about humanity and its systems. Humanity and its systems. So when we're thinking about the world, we're thinking about people, but we're also thinking about the systems they create, the cultures they create, and how they are, um, how they particularly are, are without God or ignorant of God or not sensing that God is there or in active rebellion against him. Now, all four of those things are kind of on the spectrum, right, of how, how we understand it. Like, active rebellion feels different than, like, not aware of, right? But but Jesus is going to talk about the world in this whole sense, on this whole spectrum of not just like they don't know about God, they, they can't sense him, they're ignorant of him, to they're in active rebellion against him. And this is important for us to understand, especially as we, if, we're, if we are in the world but not of the world, one of the questions we have to ask is, what is our relationship to the world? What, what even is our part in the world and our contribution to this negative part of the world, the active rebellion against the world, or not even sensing that God is there. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to ask this question about, okay, well, what, what, what particularly, if, if we have God, Jesus, and us, we follow Jesus, Jesus is glorifying the Father, what is this relationship like to this fallen world that is an active rebellion and not sensing who God is? What is our relationship in that way? All right? So here's, here's the, the first question is this. If the world is the fallen humanity, okay, fallen humanity, that, that uh, without God, ignorant of God, not sensing God, and an active rebellion against God, the world is fallen humanity. So let me ask this question. What is the world's posture toward Jesus and Jesus' followers. Look at 15:18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Okay, so the answer is it hates us. All right, I don't know if that's the, 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 the total answer, but Jesus makes it, makes it clear, like in this passage, okay, okay, a little nuance to hate. Let's talk about hate just for a second, okay? Um, Jesus just finished, if you, go, if you look back up in chapter 15, and you look back up, like, just look one verse uh, back, and you'll see that Jesus is talking about this abiding in the vine. 
and that the call is for all the believers, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me and you will produce much fruit. And so abiding in him, and we talked last week about, uh, or a couple weeks ago, about the fruit. And the fruit primarily is, what is the fruit? Love. The fruit is primarily about love. And if you abide, then you will love. So this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. That's immediately preceding this. But outside, so this idea, love, abide, fruit, it's love. Love, that's the new commandment. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, this idea, love, 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 love. And then he says, but outside this community, so inside this community, what should you expect? You should expect love. You should expect this idea of self-emptying love, people looking at you and loving you. Now, we know that sometimes we don't experience that in this community, okay, because we're a community of fallen people, right? But the idea is that they will know that you are my followers if you love one another. And so he's just coming off of this idea of love. And in the same way that he's like, hey, love one another, there's, and there's nuance to that, he's also going to say, look, outside of this community, outside of this community, outside of the circles in your homes, outside of the, the walls of this church, it's going to be something else. 1519, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That the, the world out there has its own ways of doing things. It has its own favorite sons. It has its own favorite daughters. It has its own that do what the world does. And the world loves its own. The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And there's something to be said about hatred in the logic of Jesus. And he says, um, he says remember the word that I said to you, this is, this is great, the servant is not greater than his master. Like you guys thought you were going to get out of this whole, like, hey, I can love Jesus and, and I'm going to go out in the world and they're going to love me. Okay, <laughs> thank you. I, I mean, sometimes, and, and again, I think that there are times where we should, there is a sense of being, trying to be winsome in the world. There is a sense in which, like, hey, what have we done? Like, it just, we want to be winsome. We don't want people to hate us for cause, right? And, and there are Christians out there that you're like, no, there's, you're not being persecuted. You're just being an, a, an idiot, right? It's not like, it's, you're, it's, not like it's not like people hate you. You're just weird. Like, there's just, it's not like you're being holy. You're like, sometimes we, we, we uh, exchange, like, sanctification for just weirdness, right? No, no, no. The idea is that you, they will know you are Christians by love. And, and he says this, like, he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. It's almost like he's saying, like, hey, they're going to they're gonna follow you as much as they followed me. Like, they're, gonna, they're not going to like you in the same way that they didn't like me. Now, at the same time, if you're followers of, so he's saying, if you're followers of me, and they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. They'll listen to you as much as they listened to me. And in many ways, what Jesus is doing here, again, this is the last night of Jesus' life on earth. He's going he's gonna to be crucified the next day. And he has this, this farewell speech, these weighty words. He's trying to prepare his followers for what 
is to come and, and to prepare essentially us for what is to come. Now, let me say something about hate. Because, my, again, my experience of the world is not simply categorical hatred towards me as a believer, okay? And I, I, probably you, if you're honest, like the world, that, like there's some nice people out there in the world who don't love Jesus. And you've probably experienced that. And so let me say something about hate here. There's a tendency in Jewish thought, again, and we're coming off of this love and hate. And, and John is very much in like, you're either in the light or you're in darkness, Right? Or you are either, uh, 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 you're either seeing or you're blind. Like that's John. John. John really likes that kind of dichotomy. And so here, you're either loving or you're hating. And it can be, it can be hyperbole. Like if you think about in the Jewish world, sometimes in order to make their point, there's use hyperbole. Like in the story of Jacob and Esau, there's this line, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Does God hate Esau? And I would argue probably no, I would say that that line is for that Jacob is going to be the preferred one, okay? Now, we could have a theological conversation about all that, but one of the things that Jesus says elsewhere in Luke 14, 26, he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, do you hear the hyperbole? What's the point? The point there is Jesus saying, look, if you're going to follow me, then my will needs to be preferred over even the people you love the most. And so, again, hatred in some ways is there's hyperbole going on. Now, I think our experience in the world is that, yeah, there are people who might be curious or interested uh, or might be ambivalent. Some people might even make the argument that, um, uh, that the opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is just indifference. Just, like, who cares? Apathy. Apathy is the opposite of love. I have no feelings about what you believe. Like, whatever, okay? Or you might have experienced active opposition to your faith. You might have experienced that. And actually to the point where you would say, they really hate me. And not just, be, not just to, like, be, not just for hyperbole, but like, no, those people really hate me. They hate me. They want me dead. Like, maybe you've experienced something like that. And I'm not saying that that, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen. It might not happen as much in our particular culture that has, uh, that has a lot of room for some, uh, some faith. But this is a way of saying coming to Jesus or giving greater allegiance than family. And push comes to shove, you will prefer my will over the other. Why does the world hate? Or to put it this way, why does the world, let's put it this way, why does the world not prefer the followers of Jesus? Let's just think about it that way. Why does the world not prefer the followers of Jesus? Look at 1521. All of these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So if we got the world, the world, this world, what is this world's problem? Like, what is your problem, right? What is your problem? And the problem is this. The problem is, though God has created a good world, good, true, beautiful, 
there is a fallenness. And in that fallenness, the world does not know God. In 1417, it says, they do not know or even or see the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says, but you do. He abides with you and will be in you. But they don't see, they don't perceive the work of the Spirit. They don't know God. In 1430, it says, one other thing, that what's their problem? They have a different ruler. The world has a different ruler. Someone who's saying, I want my will to be done, that is in active opposition to what God says, I want my will to be done. So in this fallen world, we have, we have co- competitive wills. And then you throw your will in there. Like there's three wills that are trying to get done in this world. And you wonder why it's so hard, right? Like there are all of these wills at work in the world, but the world is like, look, we don't care. I don't care about your will and I don't care about God's will. There's a ruler of the world that wants his will to be done. And so the world, if the world has another ruler, the world is not going to appreciate that Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm the true king. I'm the true king. And if someone follows that true king, the world is not going to like that either. We saw this with Jesus, we see it with his followers, and we see it today. There is an antagonism towards the message of Jesus. Now, one thing about this is, if Jesus, Jesus has gathered this group of people, right, and then he's like, and the world is messed up, and the world's going to hate you, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. one of the things you have to ask is like, well, what, like, how is anybody in the world, if they're so antagonistic, toward God, how's anybody in the world going to actually turn towards God? And this brings us to the question, what is, so if the world is antagonistic toward Jesus, and I'm sorry that you guys are the world, like I'm on your, this is your, like, and you guys get to be Jesus today, right? And his followers, good job, okay, no, okay, but if, if Jesus, if, what, what, what is, if, if that's the posture of the world toward God and toward Jesus, what is God's posture toward this sick and depraved and active moral disobedience? Like, what is God's posture toward this horrible, fallen world that is so antagonistic? Now, before we write off the world, let's just remember that Jesus' disciples were once part of this world. Look at 1519. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. The preposition there is he, Jesus went into the world and took them from within the world and he took them out from the world. They were, they were in the world. But Jesus says, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The woman at the well, she was in the world. All the Samaritans of that town, they were in the world. Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus, he comes in the dark at night He is in the world. The man born blind. 
He can't see. He was in the world in darkness. The world is a dark place without God, ignorant of God, not sensing God, in an act of rebellion against God. But the light came to shine in the darkness. The light came to shine in the darkness. I don't know if anybody knows John 3.16. For God, what is God's posture towards the world? For God so loved the world that he gave to the world, that he gave his one and only unique son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in the world, but have eternal life. Listen to this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Man, I think this is, for, for me, like, because look, you, you turn on the news, you, you know, you, you look at what is being taught in schools, you're like, you know, whatever news you're watching, like whatever news you're watching, something's wrong in this world. Like something's horribly wrong in this world existential threats, like it is going to hell in a handbasket, whatever side of the aisle you're on, right? What are we going to do? What, what do we do about that? Like every, everything is wrong. And, and I think that we, we look at the world as it's a, it's a dangerous place. Like I need to put up some walls. I need to, I need to figure out what my barriers are so that I am safe within this world. And that people don't like me, and look, they can stick it for all I care. You don't like me, I don't like you. Right? I mean, maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me, that's my gut, that's my knee-jerk reaction, right? You don't like me, I don't like you. You know, stick it, I don't care. Like that, and again, I might be, that might be a fleshly response. But it's hard to understand the teaching about, of Jesus without coming from our worldly response to stuff. And one of the things that helps, it helps to direct me, it helps to bring me back, is to ask my, myself the question, what is God's posture toward those idiots? What is God's posture towards those people who don't like me? What is God's posture to those people who are actively trying to indoctrinate my kids. What is God's posture? God loves the world. What the heck, God? <laughs> Don't you know how hard it is down here? As a matter of fact, I do know how hard it is down there. I sent my son to experience how hard it is down here. And I still love the world. Even though the world is opposed to God, the world is the arena where God is at work. Let me say that again. Even though the world is opposed to God, the world is the arena where God is at work to save and transform lives. It is in 
the world that God is working. God is working. Sure, he's working in the church, and that's awesome, but God is like, look, that's great, but you guys all exist so that you can have my heart to love the world. God's posture is surprisingly engaging and generous with the world. Humanity, its ways, its systems, particularly as they are without God, ignorant of God, not sensing God, in active rebellion against God, and God is surprisingly engaging and generous. Jesus, aware of the risks, is sent to the world. He comes into the world so that the world, fallen humans in active rebellion against another, against their creator with another ruler, so that the world might come to know and be reconciled to God. Our salvation is being reconciled to a father through Je- the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, that's what I want for the world. I want them to be reconciled to me. I want them to be reconciled to me. Will you join me in that posture? I've sent my son, and now, now, now I'm going to send you into the world. Into the world. So to ask the question then, we know what God's posture is toward the world. It's surprisingly, surprisingly engaging. Surprisingly generous. Like, even if you don't believe in Jesus, he will still bring rain down and sunshine down on you. You can still grow crops. You can still get a degree. You could still become a doctor. There's all kinds of common grace in this world. God is surprisingly generous to those who could give a rip about him. Surprisingly engaging. Surprisingly generous. So this brings us to our question. Probably the hardest question of the day, right? So what is our posture of the followers of Jesus to the world? I think we want to explore this this nuanced relationship, and again, this in the world, but not of the world. How does this work? Look at 17. Turn over to chapter 17. As Jesus is praying for his followers, look in verse 13. He says, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. So Jesus is like, hey, right now, everybody? Jesus is like, hey, Followers, like right now, we're in our huddle, like we're in, gather in, but he's like, hey, we're in the world right now. We're in the world right now. I'm speaking these things while in the world, that they may have joy, my joy, fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, so he's speaking to his father, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. And the first thing, I I think the first thing to note, and this is probably the thing that we all understand pretty well, is that the very first thing is like, even though you're in the world, you are not supposed to be of the world. Like there are some attitudes and sensibilities from within the world that followers of Jesus are not called to take on. We are not of the world. Jesus was not of the world, and so there were things that he did not participate in. He didn't participate in greed and accumulation of wealth. Like, Jesus was surprisingly spartan in the amount of things he accumulated in his life. 
It makes me like, I'm like, every time I clean out my garage, I'm like, one step toward Christ like this? Right? Like, but it's still, I got so much stuff. And Jesus did not come to accumulate or greed or even having all of this power. He did not exert all this power just willy-nilly. He was choosy about how he exerted his power and his influence. So the first thing, we're, we're not of the world. There, and I think that this is the, the first thing is that as you engage the world, there's a sense of discernment like I've got to be like, yeah, that's not for me. Like there's some, there's some things that we're like, yeah, that, that is not something I need to engage in. You're not of the world, okay? And I think in a, in a room like this, you're probably like, okay, we've, I think we've got that down. Like maybe even our, our, our goal, like what we do in this room, like maybe it's that I, I'm pretty sure, I, like I don't even have any non-Christian friends, so I think I've got that down right? I'm so separated from the world. Maybe I don't have any non-Christian friends. Or maybe you're in this room and you're like, no, I, I, know, I know I'm supposed to not be of this world, but I have so many people that I know that are not believers, and I wonder if I'm being influenced by them. And that, that's a tension that we, that we live in. But we're not supposed to be of the world. Look at 1715. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, here's another thing to note. God's solution to us being in this predicament in the world, his solution is not simply, well, what I need to do is take you out. That's not his solution. His solution is what I'm going to do, I'm going to send you in, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep you from the evil one. I'm going to protect you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out ways to keep you, the word keeping is guarding, protection from a domination by the evil one. Look at 17, 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And rather than removal, I don't know why, seems like, hey, it'd be great if we could just be you know, like our hope, sometimes we, we think our hope is just removal. Lord Jesus, come and remove me. And he's like, hey, the, the hope is not that. Actually, the hope, I think the hope, what God is saying, I think the hope is sending you in. I think the best strategy is sending you in, not removing you out. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says to the Father, so I have sent them into the world. sent into a world that feels like a foreign place? Does anybody feel like this is a foreign place? Even though you've lived here your whole life, you're like, I don't recognize this place anymore, right? Wherever you go in the world, you're going to feel like that. Because as the Apostle Paul says, that we, we're exiles. We're, we're citizens of another country we've never been to. This is the reason why in, in the book of Hebrews that Abraham wanders around looking for a city whose builder, whose foundations and builder and architect is God, and he will never live in a city because he will only live in a tent because he doesn't find that city. He will only go into the city of God. And so he will never live in a city. That guy's not lost. He just has convictions. Sent into a world that feels like a foreign place, a dangerous place, a hostile place. To engage in the same posture as the father and the son who love the world 
who are surprisingly engaging and generous with the world. Even as they keep their convictions of not being of the world, sent in, but not of. Now, as we kind of land the plane here, in the world, but not of the world, this is something that believers have had disagreements about for a long time. How much should we engage with or withdraw from the world? Its practices, its activities, and activities that are worldly. Um, Alana, our office manager, she was sharing this week as we were looking at this passage how her family, her great-grandparents, great-grandparents, they came over from Russia, and they came over as, a, as part of a religious sect that was being persecuted. And so what they did, this was like in the late 1800s, I think, um, they bought a town in Mexico. All these families got together, and they bought a town in Mexico. And they basically, they were the ones who lived there. They bought the land, and they lived in seclusion from the world. And it la- she was saying that like, it lasted for like a generation, and then people were like, yeah, I'm done with this. <laughs> like, it's, like, I think for, for some people, when they, when, I think for some generations that go through harsh persecution, there is this sense of like, okay, let's cloister up and let's, let's, let's protect but eventually, people who even followed Jesus said, no, it's time. We, we can't just hide in our town. And so they moved out. Now, it might not be like, I don't know, some of you might be like, you know, it's the, it's the Texodus time. And you're like, uh, you know, it's like, hey, let's sell our houses and let's go find a commune somewhere. And there actually have been, I've read, there are Christians today who are advocating for that sort of a thing. Now, again, all this to say there have always been disagreements about how much believers should engage with the world or separate from the world. What movies is it okay for a Christian to watch? What music is it okay for Christians to listen to? Should I use playing cards? Anybody experience that? Rook cards are okay, but actual cards, not okay. Like, that's a generational thing, okay? Uh, up, at Hume, uh, up at Hume Lake in the subdivision, the original rules were um, there could be no playing cards. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, so interesting. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, those, that's been changed over the years. But you can see how even over, over time, there are different things that people are like. And, and maybe there are, there are more stigmas associated with things. I remember a big thing for me growing up was just Christians and alcohol. And for me being underage, I was like, well, I'm underage. I'm not going to drink. It's illegal. Like, that's a pretty good line, okay? But then when you get, when, but then when, when I, as I turned 21, I was working with youth, and I was like, alcohol is such a distraction to youth. And I was like, I think it's just easier to do ministry to youth by not having it as a distraction, I remember being on the Biola campus, and we lived on the campus, and Kelly was a resident director. I was teaching on campus, and there was a no-alcohol rule on campus. And I'm like, and I was like, it's a huge distraction on college campuses. Like, morally or not, let's just talk pragmatically, it's a distraction you don't need. Now, you get older, and you're like, well, okay, beer, wine, what, can you get, can you drink without getting drunk? All, I mean, all these things, you think about all the, but all of the conversations that went along with that, and the morality behind it, we're, we're not of the world. Like, okay, well, What do we do with all that? Tobacco. 
medicine, psychology. Like these are all things that in my lifetime I have heard arguments from well-meaning people who love Jesus about levels of separation from these sorts of practices. The way we dress. One of the things in our um, pastor's class, we have a doctrinal statement, but we also have some addendums on the end of that. And one of the addendums that, that we go through in the class is, um, is the statement, items on which we agree to disagree. And it says this, two Christians, even though they are of the same local church and part of the same leadership group, may agree to disagree about certain doctrines and practices. Some examples include modes of baptism. Should we dunk? Should we pour? Should we sprinkle? What if you were sprinkled and now you're in this community, do we consider you baptized? Right? Like, these are the sorts of things. The dating of the events of Genesis and the age of the earth. Is it a young earth? Is it an old earth? Is it 4.3 billion years old or only about 25,000 years old? Like, that's a pretty big difference. And what we would say is that that's an item on which there's agreement to disagree. The significance of the miraculous gifts. Like, should people, sign gifts, should they be practiced? Okay, now what we would say is that there's, there's room for disagreement on that. In our, in our service, what I would say is that, pragmatically speaking, we don't want to have distractions in our service. And so, but I think that the Lord is still at work and that we should be praying for people. We should be praying for healings. We should be praying for that. That can happen in a small room off to the side, but that, that, that we, we're not going to slap people on the forehead on the stage. It's, that's a distraction. Okay? At least as I, as I see it. Now, I could, but here's the thing. I think we could have a good conversation about that. I think two believers can have different opinions about that matter and still not be of the world. The timing of the events associated with the Lord's return. Is he going to come pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pan-trib? It's all going to pan out in the end. Okay, like, you get the idea. Okay, that there is room for disagreement, that our doctoral statement is silent on some of these things, and there's room for even two people that are on the same elder board to have well-meaning disagreement about. And what we say is that, and one of the things is the degree of separation. So some examples include modes of baptism, dating of the events of Genesis, the order of the events associated with the Lord's return, the significance of miraculous gifts, and the degree of separation from worldly practices. And one of the things I just, I, I want to have as a, just a point of generosity as a, as a community, is one, I, I want our, the heart of our community to match the heart of our Father towards a fallen world. Which means, I would expect, and I would assume, that you guys are going to have all kinds of non-Christian friends and be volunteering in all kinds of non-Christian organizations and all kinds of engagement in the community because you love the community even if they don't love Jesus and even if they don't like you. I would expect that. I think that, that that's the heart of God toward a fallen world. I would expect that in our community, we would have tons of people who have that heart. Now, I would also expect in our community that there's lots of people who are like, hey, look, like, I don't think you need to do like evangelism in bars. Like, I think you just go because you want to drink. 
right? Like, I would expect, like, if somebody were to be like, hey, I'm, like, there are some things you'd be like, I don't think that that's a good place for you to go. I would expect that because we do have standards of holiness. We have standards of, like, good conduct. We don't want to expose ourselves to too many things that are going to, like, take us down the wrong road. But at the same time, how are we going to reach the lost if we have no idea what the lost are doing? So, you're like, Pastor Craig, what are you doing with this? Okay, what I'm doing with this is that I want us to live in that tension. I want us to have disagreements about this. I want us to have that tension of a heart that God has, a love for the world, but also a vigilance toward the world. So, with all that to say, I mean, how, how do I land the plane? I land the plane by saying, this is what the Hebrews called wisdom. Skillful living. How do we navigate this? This is why Jesus says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to put the Holy Spirit inside. And he's going to lead you, he's going to guide you. But there are no hard, fast rules on this. You're in the world, but not of the world. Work it out with the Holy Spirit. And I would expect that there might be disagreements. What My hope above all hopes is that there would be a generosity with each other as we engage with the world even if somebody's doing something that looks kind of weird i know you love jesus and i'm I, i'm going to support you in that i'm going to love you in that i'll talk to you about it and maybe i mean maybe i might want to talk you out of it but at the same time i'm going to trust you there's a generosity with that and whenever teaching is done in any of these matters of secondary importance, it should be made clear that these doctrines are not essential for salvation or leadership. That's what our statement says. We may state the case for our position, but we should point out in many cases sincere and intelligent Christians of equal dedication, equal biblical knowledge, equal spiritual maturity and love for Christ hold different positions. And what I want to urge you to do and I don't know what it is, but as we, as we kind of land, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. As we finish this up, I, I just want you to consider, like, where is the, in what direction am I feeling this tension most? Is it more that, like, I feel like I'm being influenced by the world, and I need to kind of back off some things? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're like, I feel like I've been participating in things that I would consider worldly, and I need to back off of some of those things. Maybe that's where you're at. And if that's the case, I would imagine that the Holy Spirit is like, yeah, this, this, this. You need to put up some boundaries, put some friction between you and those things so that you don't engage in those things. But even as we're here, maybe what you're thinking more is like, now, I don't have any non-Christian friends. I have no idea what's going on in this world. I've cloistered myself. With everybody around me is a believer, and it's been that way for a long time. And maybe you're like, well, Holy Spirit, I need, show me an entry point. Show me an on-ramp into loving this world. If, if you just want to pray that prayer, like Jesus, Holy Spirit, just show me an on-ramp to loving the world. Or give me, give me the heart of the Father towards the world. Again, I don't know what it is. Let's pray. Let's just... Let's just pray right now and just ask the Holy Spirit. Spirit, 
we recognize that you're present. We just want to acknowledge that you are in this room. And by the blood of Jesus and by our faith in Jesus, you indwell us. And Father, you have made this all possible. And we ask that you would illumine our hearts to whatever it is, whatever direction we might feel the tension in. If we need to remove ourselves from something of this world, we pray, make that clear to us. And if there are ways that we need to engage this world, make that clear to us as well. We realize in this room there are going to be multiple answers to that question. And Spirit, we know you can sort all of that out. Father, we come this morning, we give you our whole lives. We want to love you, we want to follow Jesus, and we want to be attentive to the work of your Spirit in our lives. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.